morning church. It, uh, it's always a special day when you get to see kids on stage singing about uh, um, Jesus and David and those types of miracles. Um, it's a special time for us for sure. That song, as I think about it, as I hear my church singing it, um, we'll stand on these promises. We'll fix our eyes on our soul's reward. When I hear you guys singing that song, it, it, it just is an encouragement to me. Because there are days and weeks where I wonder, if I was going to be honest with you, if we will really experience... As a church, victory over sin. I see the truths of God's word and then walking through life with my brothers and sisters, seeing my own life, it's, it's difficult. And yet God's word is sure and it's true and it promises us that we will see victory over that sin. And we hear and we are reminded in the word of God and as we rehearse this on our lips to one another, that he is coming again. And that one day all things will be made new. And so it's a privilege for me to gather with you this morning. I, I, I hope that you don't ever think that what we do together as a church on Sunday mornings is not important. Or that it's um, neither here nor there. Or you can take it or leave it. I, I want you to know that I can't, I can't make it through this life without the church. And I know that you can't either, whether you think you can or not. And so I hope that this morning you're encouraged in that and that you're reminded of that. And especially on Family Fest Sunday, as we gather together, children in here with us, and we are reminded and we rehearse the truths of Scripture, fathers to their wives, fathers to their children, mothers to their children, brothers to cousins, friend to friend, we hold hands together and we march and stand on the word of God towards the glory of God. And so it's a privilege for me to be with you this morning. And I hope that this is a, a, uh, a blessing to you and that, that it glorifies our Lord. I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning. God, you, you're great. You're good. You've blessed us with more than we deserve. God, we deserve your judgment. We deserve damnation, and yet you've given to us grace. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy, you've saved us. So we make much of you today. We thank you for that. God, we pray that as we think of this grace that we've received, that you would just give us a boldness. As we enter into a season of focused evangelism and focused outreach. God, we followed this vision of being a church where people were helping other people find and follow you. God, help us to never forget that. Now as we enter into this season, I pray that you would give us a boldness a confidence in your scriptures and in your truth and in your gospel that we hold so precious. God, that we'd preach it to ourselves, that we'd believe it on a daily basis, that we wouldn't soon forget it. Not just that we would hold it, but that we would extend it to our neighbors, to our family members. God, that we'd preach it to our children. We'd preach it to ourselves. Spirit, that you would embolden us 
to claim this truth. We will have victory over sin. God, we, we know that there is a city here full of people that are in need of this gospel. So would you send us, would you give us opportunity to share that gospel with a boldness? God, not just here. We, we couldn't do this on our own. You've not left us to do that either. You've brought many other in your name in this city. So we pray that you would help us to unite. And in a sense, lock arms as we march together for the glory of your name, for the good of your people. God, we think of specifically about Paramount Baptist this morning. We just lift them up to you. God, would you strengthen them? Would you equip them this summer as they themselves work to do vacation Bible school and other outreaches? Father, would you, as they combine together, would you give them a boldness and fruit as they share the gospel? And more than that, God, on an individual level, as their, as their members share the gospel, God, would you give them fruit in that? God, would you grow your church here in this city? God, we, we don't just think of places like Hagerstown. Father, we think of places all the way over in Asia. On the other side of the world, we think of Micah and Keith and little baby Judah. Father, we lift them up to you. God, would you be near to them? Would you be close to them as they serve there in Asia? God, but like us, would you give them a boldness? Would you help them to overcome language barriers and whatever else that would be in their way? Spiritual warfare, God, would you, would you squelch it? Would you give them a boldness as they preach the gospel? Would you give them fruit? God, we're so thankful that You've even been faithful to send out of this body. Even on this short-term trip, we think of Kat and we lift her up to you. God, you've been faithful. You've, you've protected her. You've blessed her. You've given her uh, just favor with folks in her area of service. And now as she returns this week, we, we pray that you would give her speed and safety. That she would be able to come back into this body, give a report. We could celebrate together what you're doing there where she was and what you're doing in her life. God, that that passion that you've given to her would brush off and rub onto us as well and that we would be encouraged all the more this summer. God, thank you for counting us faithful, making us faithful, putting us into this position and place where we could be your mouthpiece in a way. God, would you continue to do what you've done before us? Would you do it in us now? Glorify yourself through your people. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. News travels fast, especially when you're in a small school. Anybody have that experience? Growing up in a small school, it really does travel fast. Imagine if you went to school with Superman, elementary school, or actually at that point it would be Superboy. Imagine he tried to pick a teacher's papers up as the, as the wind blew them out the foyer and out into the parking lot. As he races out there, things don't turn out so well. You'd hear kids saying, did you hear about the kid who was hit by the bus? He walked away, but Miss Davis and her bus, they'll be out of commission for a week or so. Or maybe, uh, maybe you heard somebody say something like this. Did you hear about Mr. B? 
He said if anybody could beat him in a two-lap race, that they wouldn't have to run the rest of the semester in gym class. Imagine going to school with Superboy. As you hear about all the things that would leak out of, through the, down through the classrooms and the hallways, it would be tons of gossip, but in a good way. Exciting things taking place. There would be a buzz for sure in the school. News would get around. And I'm sure that that's exactly what was taking place in Babylon. As you look at the book of Daniel, we've been in it for uh, two weeks now. There's a buzz in, 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 uh, in Babylon. Babylon is a buzz, right? There's, some, there's more jokes in there, but I'll, I'll pass them for now. But I imagine that was the case. Lots of exciting things were taking place. Uh, I, I can picture that everybody has heard about these young Hebrew boys that had been through quite a bit, specifically Daniel. Daniel and his four friends, though, they wouldn't eat of the meat that was offered to the idols, and Nebuchadnezzar was trying to get them to do it, but then he saw the fruit in those young men's lives as they stood for what was right. That was a small circle. It wasn't some crazy spectacle where everybody could see it. But news, I guarantee, was getting around. And then Daniel confidently, intelligently, he decodes Nebuchadnezzar's dream there in chapter uh, 2. And he's, the king honors Daniel and he, and he even gives praise to Daniel's God that he's able to uh, decipher this dream. And then in chapter 3, the passage we covered last week, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're, they're, they stood when everybody else bowed and in the end... God is worshipped. God is glorified there in Babylon. Chapter 5, Daniel boldly tells Belshazzar the truth of his dream, not the, of the vision, what took place there at that party. With boldness, he tells them the truth, and the king it really he honors Daniel in that. So this is a... This is some amazing stuff that was taking place in the lives of these young Hebrews. Then in chapter uh, 6, this is where we come today to see what, what will happen next. What will be the next edition in this comic book release, right? What's the next thing to be, to be told, the next story that will be passed along? Like I said, it's safe to say the Babylonians had heard about these Hebrew boys. In chapter 6, it brings us to the final episode that we'll, that we'll cover. Babylon, this great nation that conquered Judah, has now been conquered themselves. King Darius, a Persian, comes to rule there in the city of Babylon. And Daniel, just as a way, as an update, Daniel is an old man by this time. He's not a young Hebrew jumping in and out of fiery furnaces and eating vegetables and whatnot. A lot of time has gone under or has passed by. And so I want to read this story to you out of the Bible. But this morning, I actually don't want to read it out of um, the English Standard Version. I, I want to read it out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. I want to just put a plug in for this. This is a wonderful resource for you families, uh, not just for uh, those with children, but this is a great resource for, um, for, for just couples as well. Uh, even devotionally and your, by yourselves. What, what the Jesus Storybook Bible does is it reminds us that the, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is about Jesus. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus uh, after his um, resurrection, he was walking with some of the disciples. He, it, the Bible says that he opened up the Scriptures and began to tell how everything was about him. So the Jesus Storybook Bible backs up and says, hey, look, we're going to tell you, well, let's talk about what Jesus was talking about on that road. 
And so all scripture points to Jesus, and that's what the Jesus Storybook Bible does. And so it's a great tool for you. Uh, we've used it as a family before, and uh, it's been a big help. And this is also what we use in the blue station here at Hubtown Kids. I want to read this to you. It, it, it may be on the screen this morning. It may not be. If not, you'll, you'll, uh, you can just follow along as I read it. This particular entry is called Daniel and the Scary Sleepover. Daniel and the Scary Sleepover. See, it's already way more fun. Um, but here we go. So Daniel and the lines then from Daniel chapter 6. Things were not looking good for God's people. They had been captured and taken far from home. And now they were slaves of the king Babylon. But God had not left his people. He was with them. And he was looking after them. And Daniel loved God and obeyed him. Now God made Daniel able to understand lots of difficult things. So it wasn't long before the king of Babylon noticed him. And King Darius liked how clever Daniel was. So he made Daniel his most important helper of all and put him in charge of lots of other helpers. But the other helpers didn't like this. And they wanted the king to like them the best. And they wanted to get rid of Daniel. So they spied on Daniel. They tried to find things going wrong with Daniel. They, they, things that they could tell the king. Things they could, but there weren't any. None. They couldn't find anything at all. Except there was just this one thing. Every day, three times a day, without fail, no matter what, Daniel went to his room, closed the door, and prayed. They smiled to themselves. Let's get the king to make a law. No one is allowed to pray to anyone except the king. Daniel won't obey this law and he will be punished. They were pleased with themselves for being so clever. And they hurried off to tell the king. And the king, he liked their idea. He didn't know they were tricking him. So he made it into a law. Everyone must pray only to me. And if you don't, the lions will have you for their dinner. Daniel heard this. He knew it was wrong to pray to anyone except God. And he had to do what God said, whatever it cost him, even if it meant that he would die. And so Daniel went to his room, he closed the door, and he prayed. That's just what the bad men knew Daniel would do. They skipped straight off to tell the king, Oh, your most glittering highness, your law says, does it not, that everyone must pray to you alone, sire? Yes, said the king. Oh, magisterial brightness, then correct us if we're wrong. But it would seem that Daniel is praying to God, not to you. And the king was sad. He had been tricked. He didn't want to hurt Daniel, but he couldn't change his law. And so he let the soldiers throw Daniel to the lions. May your God, who you love so much, rescue you, the king said. The king went back to his palace, but he didn't sleep that night. Not a wink. He tossed and turned until finally, at the first glimmer of dawn, he leaped out of bed and he ran straight to the den. Daniel, he cried, 
Has your God rescued you? Yes, Daniel shouted. God sent an angel to close the lion's mouths. And there, resting his head on Daniel's lap, was the biggest lion purring like a little kitten. The king brought Daniel out of the den. Look, he said, Daniel doesn't even have a scratch. The king made a new law. Daniel's God is the true God, the God who rescues. Pray to him instead. And God would keep on rescuing his people. And the time was coming when God would send another brave hero like Daniel who would love God and do what God said, whatever it cost him, even if it meant he would die. And together they would pull off the greatest rescue the world has ever known. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. As we look at it this morning, we walk through the story that you've provided for us, these Hebrews, these Israelites there in exile. We pray that you would feed us. We know in your sovereignty that this scripture was not just given to a Jew in the fifth century. It's given to us as well. And so we pray, Spirit, that you would empower me, that you would, in a sense, hide me as your word is preached this morning and that your, your flock would be fed. God, we pray that you'd be glorified above all things. In Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So you may have noticed a similar theme this morning between this story and last week's story. The parallel between the, the, this story and chapter 3, the fiery furnace, it, it's very clear. The audience is the same. It's the same book. And so you can imagine that the, the main idea would be related. And, and to some degree it is. It is the same thing. Last week this was the point. God requires obedience to him whatever the consequences. While at the same time he affirms his sovereignty over creation and his presence among his people. That's what we looked at last week. God requires complete obedience no matter what the consequences, but at the same time he affirms his sovereignty over creation and his presence among his people. This is the same point that we'll look at this morning. It's the same thing. And yet there's something different. There's another aspect to it. Have you ever used a, deco- a decoder ring or decoder glasses? Those are the fun ones. The, the, the decoder glasses uh, oftentimes would be, there'd be some type of a code written on a cereal box and then inside would be a special set of glasses and they'd be torn apart as the siblings reached into the box at the same time and tried to, to use it for themselves. But there'd be blue and red mismatched lettering on the side of this box or in, this, in the back of this book. And you'd have to don these glasses with the the red film and the red film would mesh with the red messiness and it would just kind of delete in a sense and only what you would see would be the blue lettering. There's this decoding and so if we take chapter 3 and chapter 6 and we put them together and what's the same we kind of set to the side what's left I want to show you this morning. Daniel that we can use our decoder glasses this morning and so I want to show you the ways that that uh, the things that are left and unique, in a sense, in Daniel chapter 6. So first is this. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, he is in a rage when he throws Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace. He is throwing a temper tantrum, a hissy fit, right? If his mom was around, he would be, he would be, blocks would be cleaned up and he'd be going to his room for a long time. 
This is Nebuchadnezzar, and yet that's not what we see in Daniel chapter 6. The king is, is acting quite different. He's befriended Daniel, and he spends the whole day trying to save Daniel, not, not in anger, frustrated because he hadn't prayed to him. Quite a difference. Another difference is that Nebuchadnezzar had questioned God's ability to save. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nobody can deliver you out of my hands. Bow. Right? That's not Darius's response. You remember, even in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says it so clearly. May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. Darius calls out. May your God deliver you. And here's what I I think that these differences are pointing to. That as God delivers his faithful children, the hearts of those looking on are changed. The hearts of those looking on are changed. And so I want to encourage you this morning. As you go through your life, as you suffer, as you struggle, as you experience victory, as you experience gain, as you experience loss, be aware of this, that there are people that are watching you. They're, they're taking notice of how you respond. They're taking notice of how you interact and how you respond to the, to the circumstances that God and His sovereignty has allowed you to be a part of. And in that, know this, that you, in, in God's sovereignty, can and will play a role in drawing their hearts to Himself. Drawing their hearts to God. God delivers His faithful children, and as He does, The hearts of those who look on are changed. The main person that I want to look at this morning is this man, Darius. We know very little about Darius. As a matter of fact, we're not even quite sure who Darius is. There's four or five strong arguments as it could be this guy, it could be that guy. Maybe Darius isn't really his uh, his name. Maybe that's actually just a title and he could be this guy named Guberu. That's a a name. Um, Could be lots of different things we don't really know. But as we walk through this passage... I want you to focus in on Daniel and just kind of see how he reacts. I want you to walk in his shoes and experience what his emotions. And there's five uh, things that I want to point out to you as we walk through this passage. And this might be helpful as we just kind of demonstrate some structure as we move forward. And I've made it simple for you. We'll look first at the document. King Darius signs a document, a law into, uh, into uh, being there in, in, in Babylon. We'll look at the document. Then we'll look on to the distress as, as uh, things shake out, Darius finds himself very distressed. And then Darius makes a declaration, and we'll look at that declaration. It's a very important declaration. I think it tells us quite a bit. After the declaration, there's some delight that, that uh, Darius has. He has some whiplash. He goes from distress to delight. And then finally, we'll end on his decree. Darius, King Darius makes a decree, and so we'll, we'll end there. So let's jump into it there with the document. So it's that time again. No hidden skeletons are safe. Imagine working as long as 50 years as a public servant and nobody ever being able to find one thing wrong with you. That's not been the case. We don't don't see that. The, the, The unregenerate, sinful parts of us enjoy Sadly, this time of the political season, as we just see people getting raked over the coals for all the things that they've done, all the mistakes that they've made, and things in their past, and even in their present. 
It's hardly do you ever see somebody squeaky clean on the stage politically. It doesn't happen. And yet this man, Daniel, the Bible says, was squeaky clean. He had some enemies there in Babylon and they could not take him down. They couldn't find anything. And yet the one thing that they could find was probably the strongest thing about him. His faith in his God. There's no stealing from work, no stealing of resources or time, no shortcuts or tricks there politically, no backstabbing or underhanded dealings. This guy was the real deal. The only way that they could get him was if they were to get him in according to his relationship with his God. And so they did. They had King Darius sign a law in. They played on Darius's pride. And there's a holiday, if you will, about 30 days where nobody is to pray to anybody but Darius. Acting as sort of a go-between, a mediator, if you will. This is Darius. It's illegal to pray. I thought it was interesting. Spurgeon offered this. Suppose the law of the land were proclaimed, no man shall pray during the remainder of this month on pain of being cast into the den of lions. How many of you would pray? I think there would be rather a scanty number at the prayer meeting. Not but what, attend, not but what the attendance of, at prayer meeting is scanty enough now. But if there were the penalty of being cast into the den of lions, I am afraid the prayer meeting would be postponed for a month owing to pressing business and manifold engagements of one kind and another. It's a great question. My question to you would be this. If you were to stop praying for a month, how much free time would you have? If you were to stop praying altogether... This week, how much free time would you have? You could repurpose that time. What does it add up to? As I read this passage, I was convicted. Would there even be that much of a difference in my life? Would it be noticeable in the lives, uh, in the eyes of others as they look on to me? What about you? We live in a land where it's not illegal to pray to God. And Daniel lived in a land where it was. And yet he still prayed. He still went to God on a regular basis. In chapter 3, the law required them to bow. But in chapter 6, it required Daniel to stand. But in verse 11, we see Daniel thanking God and praying for deliverance from the situation. Or maybe praying for faithfulness and for strength in his current situation. That he would be strong enough to continue to do what God has called him to do. Daniel's commitment was such that he wouldn't even compromise in the face of punishment or death. He did just what he'd always done. He prayed. And that caused problems for Daniel and it caused problems for Darius. And the Bible says that Darius was distressed. So this document, this law signed in, it causes some distress for Darius. You see, Darius really liked Daniel. He really liked him. They'd become friends. They hung out together. Stayed up late, rode their bikes down the street, caught lightning bugs together. They were best of friends. And here, Darius realized what had happened. These evil men had tricked Darius into setting a trap, into being an accomplice there against Daniel. So 
Darius, he scrambles to have Daniel acquit, acquitted and he, he, he does whatever he can, but he's unable. Imagine the, the ruler of the known world doing everything in their power, but to no avail. Darius returns the, to the palace after a long day. He began to fast, presumably pray, and I believe that he was praying to Yahweh, to Daniel's God. I believe he was doing that. There, there in his distress, he calls out. Sleep evades him. Look verse, at verse 16 in chapter 6. The Bible says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Now we know Daniel's religious convictions. They weren't hidden. He wasn't a closet Christian. He wasn't a secret disciple who, who, who was ashamed. No, he was not ashamed of his allegiance to the God of Israel, even in a foreign land when it wasn't popular. In verse, verse 16, it demonstrates that. But did you hear the words of that pagan king? Did you hear what he said? Darius believed that it was possible that Daniel could be saved. Can you imagine that? Why, would, why in the world would he think it was possible for Daniel to be saved? Would Daniel somehow be able to defeat these lions who were hungry and pent up? Or was there something else that Darius knew or had heard of? You see, I believe that Darius already knew the power of Yahweh. I think that he already knew of the stories of the miracles that were in the past of the people of Israel. That God had, had performed. I believe Daniel had testified to Darius uh, not only of Yahweh's miracles there in Babylon, there in the past, but of all the way back to the beginning, how they, even how they escaped from Egypt, how they walked across on dry land as they walked out of Egypt with everything. You see, Daniel, I think, had been vocal with his faith. I think he'd been sharing his faith with Darius, and that's why Darius thought it was an option for him to be rescued. You see, he wasn't just hoping people would see that he was different and then maybe ask. I, I, I think we can see here that he was living his faith and he was speaking about it as well. As we enter into a season this summer as a church where we are really focused on, on outreach and sharing the gospel, I want to just lay something out there for you. We as a church set out and we, six months ago and we said that we wanted to be a people helping people find and follow Jesus. And my question for you is, are you doing that? Are you contributing to that vision that, that God has placed in our hearts? You can't, we can't just go through life as a church hoping that people will see something different in us. Yes, we should do that, but so much more God has called us to. The statement has been said that share the gospel as often as possible and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary to use words. Church, it's always necessary. We've got to do this. And so this weekend, I hope that you'll make it a, a, a priority for you to be there. And as, as bounce houses are inflated and as hot dogs are cooked, I, I pray that you'll be there, that you'll be present and you'll be looking for somebody to share the gospel with. Somebody to bring the hope of the truth of the gospel 
and bring it to bear in their lives. That praying, listen, God has met every single need. This, this week, I opened up a book that had been instrumental, a notebook that I had used for, for months, even for years. I went to one particular page as I, as I saw, and it was, it was a description of everything that I had envisioned that this church would be. I've cried about it this week three or four times. I can't believe it, church. I'm looking at what I wrote in that book a year and a half, two years ago. Every single thing that we said, God, this is what I think that, you want, that you're calling us to do, that you're calling us to, to, to be. And as I look across this room, even from the inanimate things on stage to the, to the people sitting in the pews, God has met every one of those needs. The resources are here. Everything that we need to help people find and follow Jesus. And so as we consider that, that statement, we've got to take action. You say, I, do I have what, I, what, I, what it takes? Look around. Yes, you do. Everything that we need, God has supplied. And Daniel, we talked about this last week. God sent this missionary God, even in their suffering, even in their punishment, had sent these young men out of their land to a foreign country to share the good news, to demonstrate the covenant of Yahweh these pagans and so Darius wasn't ignorant he knew this this was possible Daniel had spoken about it also notice the word continually if you see there in verse 16 and he uses it again in a few verses later but he says continually you serve this God he's saying the pagan king the king of Babylon the king of Persia he's saying You've always served your God and you always will. That's what he's saying, continually. He's saying, don't stop praying. And we need that reminder. Church, you need that reminder this morning. Don't don't stop praying. We've prayed for a long time that God would do this work and he's doing it. But don't stop praying. Sometimes we're tempted when when things begin to come to fruition to cease praying. Sometimes we're tempted to stop praying when things aren't coming to fruition. That God's not going to do it. That God doesn't hear. That God's not willing that this should take place. And that's not the case. Even this pagan king knew that. And he tells, Darius tells Daniel, don't stop praying. Verse 10 says, he prayed as he always had done. When he hears the law, he prayed as he had always done. When things are good, he prayed. When things were well, he prayed. When things were bad, he prayed. Even if it cost him his life, Daniel prayed, and Darius saw that. He saw it. I I imagine it sounded like the model prayer that Jesus offered in Matthew. Prayers of praise, of gratitude, of repentance, of dependence. It was normal for him. I I believe Daniel continued to pray as, as he was lowered into the den with those lions. And Darius called out an encouragement. Keep praying. Keep depending. Don't stop now. My call to you this morning as your pastor is keep praying, keep depending, don't stop now. Whether things are good, whether things are getting bad, don't stop now. Keep depending, keep praying. One of my prayers is that God would give us a people in this church like Daniel that would pray in the good times, that we'd pray in the hard times, that we'd pray when, it's, when, when it costs us something, that we'd pour out our souls to him as a unified body, pouring out our requests to the one who can save. 
It's interesting that Darius takes note of Daniel's constant posture, and I think he imitates it. I think he imitates it here. I'm going out on a limb here, but I truly believe that Darius that night prayed to Yahweh. He saw the testimony of Daniel, the life of dependence and that night I believe Darius when he could not sleep sought the Lord that we could have that type of favor in our circles in this church and in this city that city officials would look to us and take take a hint from us and as they see our faithful dependence on God they would be encouraged thereby as morning breaks, Darius arrives at the pit and he calls out to Daniel, Servant of the living God! Are you alive? Did he protect you? He waits for his response. And then the answer, The living God who I serve has protected me. And in that moment, Darius realizes Daniel's alive and God has protected him. The living God has protected Darius, the living God. See, Darius was getting confirmation even more. Seeing this life of faithfulness, this life of faith being played out in front of him. And delight overcomes this king. Delight overcomes him. Have you ever had one of those weeks that was just literally an emotional roller coaster? Tears of joy. Tears of sorrow, anger, happiness, hatred, love. Sometimes you you could just be in danger of whiplash in those weeks or in those days. And that's our boy Darius this morning. He's distressed. He's crying out anxiously in verse 20. He's sleepless in verse 18. He's hurrying to the lion's den at daybreak in verse 19. And he's exceedingly glad. He's delighted in verse 23. And he resolutely commands that Daniel be taken up out of the pit in verse 23 been a heavy couple days but here at the end he's delighted and the way that Darius felt about Daniel is shocking you have to realize that it's uncommon it's a favor that God has given Daniel there in this foreign land we might hide behind different reasons for why we wouldn't speak up for why we wouldn't live our faith in such a way that would be demonstrable to those around us we think oh there's rejection There's hatred, there's misunderstanding, there's schedules, there's all these things that would hold us back. And my call to you this morning is, church, we've got to press past that. We've got to inject ourselves into the city and to see and to contribute, to be at peace with the city. And I don't say, when I say the city, I'm not talking about the council necessarily. I'm talking about the 40,000 plus people that live within just a few miles of us. God would give us favor with them. He has. There's no reason why we can't share the gospel boldly. Knowing that he will give the increase. That the spirit of the living God will regenerate hearts and minds as the gospel is being, uh, crosses their ears. We have no excuse. Darius, he was delighted. And his delight didn't stop there with just joy he busts out into song there's a soliloquy he just looks off in the distance and he just begins to speak in poetic words here that's how he rolls this is a miracle that he would say anything like this 
Look at verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwelled in all the earth. Did you hear that? He wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. This is what he said. Peace be multiplied to you. Peace. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and to fear before the God of Daniel. This is what he says. Listen. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. You see, through the witness of Daniel, his faith and the faithfulness of God and the power of God, the entire nation receives a testimony And they come to know and reverence in some sense Yahweh. I'm going to tell you this this morning. Miracles are not an attempt of God to show off. That's not the point of a miracle. They demonstrate to a lost world that he is the true God, the one true God, and that he alone should be honored. You see, Daniel wasn't delivered for his own benefit. God loved Daniel. Yes, indeed, he did. But that is not the reason why he was delivered. He was delivered by Yahweh so that Yahweh could manifest to a lost king and to a lost world his reality and his power. Do you understand that? The point of your life is not that it will be long and painless, it's not the point. Wasn't the point of Daniel? You say, well, from this text, we see that God wants us to live a long and prosperous lives, and that's not true. It's a dangerous road to travel. The fact is that that's not what most, the majority of Christians, not just today, but throughout the centuries, the millennia, have experienced. That's not the case. As a matter of fact, thousands of our brothers and sisters through the history of Christianity have been, in fact, picked apart by the lions. It's not a promise of God that he will deliver us from this. And this is not the point, so don't take that from this. But what is the point is that God wants to demonstrate his power and his reality to a lost and dying world. This life is not about you. It's not about your suffering or the lack thereof. We see that throughout Daniel. That God is glorified in our lives whether in our life or in our death, that he is glorified when we obey him. That said, I want to point some things out. When we kneel in prayer, when it's dangerous, when it's unpopular, God is glorified. And and God draws in that, he draws men to himself. Do you you, you hear that? That's, That's amazing. You say, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher. That doesn't matter. If you're four years old this morning, Listen, you can can help other people around you understand that God exists and is worth our praise. When we obey him, it's attractive, by the way. We can encourage and God can use us to draw others to himself. We saw that in the life of Daniel. He knelt in prayer when he should have been standing. And we see that in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They should have been sitting. They should have been kneeling. And yet they stood. And what happened? God was glorified in that as well. People saw that. and thought, what is going on with these folks? There's something different about them. 
especially when they walked about in the fire. Something different about these folks. We see in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see it clearly. It's attractive. God is glorified. People are drawn in when we love the brothers. When we love the brethren, brothers and sisters, the family of God, when we love one another, it draws those in. God uses that as a catalyst to draw unbelievers to himself. I won't read this passage every, every word, but it's, 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 it's amazing. Selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds as any had need day by day, meeting together in the temple, breaking bread in their homes, opening up, being hospitable to one another. They received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all men, and the Lord added to their number. Something was different about them. God was, as, as they did what the church does, love one another, it was attractive. Churches, we gather together, even this morning, in love and in unity. It's attractive to a dying world. And it draws, it draws them in as God is glorified. We see it in Acts chapter 16. When the faithful of God suffer. Acts 16, verses 25 to 34, it's the passage, you know it well. Saul, uh, Paul and Silas, there they are in prison, they're in Philippi. They've been beaten to where they, they, they shouldn't even know where they're at. They're that night in a dirty dungeon, guiltless. They've not done anything to deserve this. And what do they do? They praise the name of God. I, I, how special that they, they could have been singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. As the blood flows out of their body, right? They're, they're singing to God. What's, what a beautiful thing. And what, what happens? People take notice. And what happened, the, the Philippian jailer, what does he say? Something's different about you guys. Something's different. What must I do to be saved? What can I do? My heart's not like that. I'm not like that. I have no hope. I'm desperate. I'm suicidal. How do I get like that? The testimony of the faithful brothers there in jail, it drew that jailer to God. God, God is sovereign and working through his people we, we draw others to Christ when we walk in holiness. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, you're the salt of the earth. We read this earlier. You're the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savor, how shall its saltiness be restored? He goes on to say in verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and hide it under a basket. But they put it on a stand. And kids, you know that song, right? Adults, you know it too. I'm not going to sing again. You'll make fun of me. Just kidding. I am going to say, no. Uh, don't light it and put it under a bushel. No, right? Jesus says, this is what he said, in the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, that's what we're called to. We would not hide our, 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 the, the glory of God, the gospel burning in our hearts, that we wouldn't hide that from the world, that we would just let it shine. Till Jesus comes. We also see others are, God is glorified and, and, and unbelievers are drawn in when we are bold in the face of danger. We saw that in Daniel. We saw that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we saw this in the life of Paul ever so clearly in chapter, two of, or chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Paul says, at my first defense, no one came and stood by me. They all deserted me. There he is by himself. He said, may it not be charged against them. 
They were afraid. They were weak. They didn't have to be here. He said, but the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the mouth of the lions. Did you hear that? He said, that the gospel, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear, so I was rescued from the mouth of the lion. What a beautiful truth. Church, the gospel was proclaimed by a man on death row to the Gentiles. They all heard it and he was still, in a sense, rescued from the mouth of lions. For a short time. No doubt the gospel went forward. Why? Because when we're bold in the face of danger, when we love the brethren, when we're faithful in our suffering, God is glorified and unbelievers are drawn in like moths to a flame. This is how God has chosen to work. He's allowed us to play a part. It's a beautiful thing. I want to ask you this question. Who, who is Darius in your life? I'm not saying you're Daniel. You're not. But if you were Daniel, who's Darius in your life? Who's the person around you that you need, that, that needs to see the gospel manifest, manifested in your life? That needs to hear it rolling off your lips? Who is it? Is it your neighbor? Is it your children? Do they need to hear it? Do they need to see it? Is it your coworker? Do they need to see that obedience that's not there? Do they need to see a strengthened faith that is wavering? I want to say yes. They need to see God work a miracle in your life. That's what they need. So consider who, who's Darius in your life. I don't want to be confusing to you. Daniel is a great example for us all. He really, really is. And, and I think that in many ways we would do well to mimic what he's done. But it's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is not for us to look at Daniel and then say, okay, Daniel faced Jerusalem when he prayed. Okay, I'm going to do that. Daniel knelt when he prayed. I think I should do that from, from now on. Uh, maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. Maybe you're thinking that you should go into your house but open the windows so people can see you. But I, I would say to all of that, that's not necessarily what you should do. I, I don't think any of those things are bad in and of themselves. But even Jesus said in the same chapter that we just read in Matthew chapter 5 that when we pray, what should we do? In the same message anyway, that we should what? Close the door and pray in secret. So it's not necessarily a truth that we should mimic Daniel because the fact of the matter is you can't. You can't, you can't mimic Daniel. Your testimony, I can tell you right now, is not that of Daniel. That Daniel had no fault and nobody could find anything wrong with him. That's what this passage tells us and that's not you. You can't do that. You are not Daniel. Jesus is Daniel. You see, the, the life of Daniel, it, it, it's not meant to be, we're not to read it and land there. And then to apply Daniel's story to our lives somehow. No, Daniel points us to Jesus. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you. You see, the, the presidents and the satraps, they conspired against Daniel. And in Matthew, we read that the chief priests and the elders, they conspired against Jesus. They wanted to have him arrested and killed. He was also pulled in on charges that were false. They couldn't find anything uh, uh, truthful against Daniel that would really bring him into, into condemnation. And the same thing is true with the chief priests. They had to make something up. 
Daniel was found guilty of transgressing the law of the Medes and the Persians. And Jesus was found guilty of transgressing the law of the Jews. They said, we have a law. This is John chapter 19. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the son of God. And Darius tried and was unable to save Daniel. Likewise, Pilate unsuccessfully attempted to save Jesus. Daniel descended into the pit, into the grave, so to speak. He would surely die there. Comparably, Jesus' body was laid in a tomb. Daniel's grave was covered with a stone and sealed. So was Jesus's. Darius discovered Daniel alive in the morning and had him removed out of the grave. And the angels told the women that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And Daniel prospered there in chapter, in, in, in chapter 6 in verse 28. And Jesus received all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's still prospering today. Daniel, no doubt, points to and foreshadows Jesus Christ himself. But Jesus is so much greater than Daniel. He's so much greater than Daniel. Unlike Daniel, listen, Jesus will never die. He's still prospering today and Daniel is gone and fell from grace and power. But Jesus' superiority over Daniel is best seen in that Daniel's deliverance brought hope to the exiled Jews But Jesus' resurrection brings us hope that we too will overcome not only sin, but death itself. So much greater. Jesus is so much greater than Daniel. So much more hope. God's deliverance of his people is on display. People's hearts, unbelievers' hearts are turned to him. And Jesus said this, when he is lifted up in his suffering. He will draw all people to himself. I want to reread the end of the passage. I want to make a slight adjustment. Slight adjustment. I want to reread this uh, poem that Darius spouts off. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved his people from the power of death and sin. This is the testimony of an unbeliever. This is the testimony of a pagan king who saw God lifted up. Who saw God to be faithful in his power, and in his kindness to his people. And in that, this is what he says. I'm not Daniel this morning. If anybody, I'm not even Darius. I'm I'm the evil schemer that's trying to bring Daniel down. If nothing else, you are as well. But if nothing else, you're you're the incompetent Darius that doesn't even know he's being tricked. And yet, what has he done? When he saw the work of God in the life of his Holy One, what happens? He's changed. And he says something like this. And what does he do? The influence that he has. As Daniel influenced Darius, and Daniel, or Darius then influences the kingdom, he spouts off this, and he says, He who has saved his people from the power of death and sin You can't be Daniel this morning, but could you be Darius? Could you remember, could you see and relish in the fact that God has been kind and faithful and he's saving people from death and sin 
and even yourself, and could you then not celebrate that and make it plain for those around you to see? I think that's the call for us today. That's the call. The remembrance of this truth that he's saved us from the power of death and sin, it leads us to this table. It leads us to communion. If you're a believer in Christ, I want to invite you in just a moment to participate in the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of Hagerstown Church to to come into this table and to to participate in communion. You, You just have to be a believer. and You have to be one that's walking with the Lord. I want to say this, if, if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, I say this with all the, the love that I, that I have for you, to, I ask you to abstain from the table. I, I couldn't be happier to see a, a new face here in this room. Several here, but I, I want to invite you to be a part of all that God is doing here at Hagerstown Church. But I want to, I want to warn you that at this table there's nothing for the unbeliever. There's no value here. The Lord's Supper, it stands as a remembrance of what God has done in our lives in the past and what he will do in the future. And so in that space in between what he's done and what he will do, we celebrate here at this table. We take communion. We're physically taking a symbol into ourselves and spiritually we're nourished by it, not physically. And so Christian, when you take of the bread, when you drink the cup, consider that Christ's body was broken and that his blood was shed and he in that Paid for your sins. This table is a symbol of him having taken all the wrath that we deserve. All of the punishment that we deserve. And so that there's nothing left but affection, love, and grace for the Christian. I had an aha moment this week as I was looking at this text and considering communion. One of the differences, we we, we looked at the differences between Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. One of the big differences between Daniel chapter 6 and the Gospels is that in Daniel chapter 6, The bad guys die and the good guy lives. But in the Gospels, the good guy dies and the the bad guy lives. You see, Jesus took all of that first. He took all of the damnation that was for us, all of the punishment, and he left for us in its place affection and love and grace. And so with that, would you remember the Lord? Would you remember his sacrifice? Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We bow our heads because Jesus bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. We bow in reverence and in respect and in awe and in adoration for the person of Jesus Christ. The words of Christ, the cross of Christ, we think of them this morning. We ask you, Spirit, that you would fill us so that our worship in this moment will bring you true honor Because you are the triune God that is living. And you bring comfort to our souls. And so in this in-between moment, as we come to this table, will you be glorified and will your church be sustained? We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. Church, I want to invite you to the table. But also before, I want you to consider and examine your heart. Weigh out what this actually means, what Christ has done for you. And let's rejoice together as we take communion. The tables are open. Christian, you're welcome to come when you're ready.